Welcome to the 12th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Patrick Mark and Graham discussing the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. And I think this time it's up to me to introduce today's band. During the punk years, there were countless rules to follow. What to wear, what to listen to, and more importantly, what not to listen to. Punk was an all-encompassing lifestyle, but one band with one song proudly proclaimed that they played pop music. And it opened the gates for punk and new wave to embrace the catchy melodic chorus while still retaining a bit of the aggression, quirkiness, and the snotty punk attitude. XTC released This Is Pop in January 1978 and made it okay to play pop music in this new world order and over the next five years released a clutch of albums packed with jarring, eccentric, infectious pop songs that made you want to dance, sing and if you're a musician, emulate. They told stories of plans for Nigel, how life begins at the hop, feeling 10 feet tall and what it's like to live on Respectable Street. Their post-post-punk output was highly regarded in America and is certainly worth a listen, but it's the first five albums that showcase the band at their creative peak. So let's all go mechanic dancing with the brilliance that is XTC. Very nice. I think that pretty much covers it. Okay. And we're done. And we're done. <laughs> That's it. Okay, I'll see you next week. Well, <laughs> I suppose there are all sorts of places where we could start this story, but it feels as if Swindon in Wiltshire might be as good a place as any. Because? Because this is the town... From whence they came. Mm. Did, um, can I say that they put uh, Swindon on the map? <laughs> Swindon was already on the map. Because, it had um, existed for some time. Because, well, I knew yeah. it existed, but uh, I never heard of Swindon before XTC. Really? Yeah. So you hadn't heard of the Magic Roundabout? That was from Swindon? Uh, which was literally a roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying they invented the roundabout in Swindon. I'm saying they perfected the roundabout. Well, they made it rounder. It multiplied. Right. They, are you, are so, you talking about the intersection or the television show in Magic uh, I'm talking about a series of roundabouts in Swindon, which is six intersecting roundabouts all in the one roundabout. So the roundabout of roundabouts. It is the roundabout of roundabouts. <laughs> uh, and this okay. is in Swindon and it is one of Swindon. Well, Swindon has three or four claims to fame. Swindon Town Football Club winning the League Cup in 1969. Who can forget that? That's the first thing I was going to say. Um, and uh, <laughs> then there's XTC, of course, and XTC more or less formed or their first incarnation of the band was 1972, I think. Okay. Which was the year that the Magic Roundabout opened. Uh, and uh, we should say that Swindon is... a about uh, 130 kilometres west of London, population of about 180,000 or so. But um, just in terms of this this roundabout, I, I, I do feel the need to quote the head of Britain's Roundabout Appreciation Society. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> you guys are friends, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he says, you have that superb mother roundabout at the centre with its five outer orbiting mini traffic islands all producing a car choreography that stuns the senses. Wow. So Car choreography. Car choreography, Love yes. It. So into this maelstrom of apathy, <laughs> as Andy Partridge once described Swindon, <laughs> came a bunch of youngsters who wanted to, uh, wanted nothing more than to rock. Nothing more? So, yeah, I mean, uh, Graham, you're the, you're the XTC expert. Well, I wouldn't call myself an expert. But um, should we talk about 
Andy Partridge's first forays uh, into music in the band. What about his childhood? Let's let's. Do you really want to go back that far? <laughs> let's, let's. He was a shy, retiring child. He had a difficult childhood, um, and he was quite alone and used to relying on himself, I suppose, mm. and developed a uh, a Valium addiction from. Twelve? Yeah, well, I he believe. was um, he was prescribed it, wasn't he? Yeah. Because um, it was the thing at the yeah, time. He was yeah, he to was calm him down. Yeah, well, he was seen as kind of being a bit weird and difficult or whatever. And as he described it, he said, "I was living with these parents, attacking each other with knives, hurling ornaments, and torturing each other." Which is hopefully slightly exaggerating. They stuck the kid on drugs rather than smashing my parents' heads together and saying, bloody well, grow up. So, Well, medication was seen as the answer in the late 60s to, mm. to any problem, so I suppose it wasn't unusual. Yeah. But that, uh, well, it may have helped him in some ways and hindered him in others. <laughs> but to put the child on Valium at the age of 12 mm. and he was on it for the next 13 years, that's, right. that's a pretty fundamental kind of mindset to inflict upon a child and especially an only child and a lonely child. Mm. So, uh, and living in a provincial town, so it's little wonder that he developed certain quirks of personality, you know, mm. which manifested themselves in some pretty interesting music. Well, he was an illustrator, wasn't he? He, mm. he loved to draw. He loved comics. He loved comics. So he found himself in that sort of solitude. And I think he has still does that to this day. Mm. But I think um, music was the other outlet because he reached an age where, you know, as a teenager, this is what you want to do. There's girls, there's excitement and, you know, music took hold of him, I suppose, at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, we don't want to labour it too much, but obviously he was an interesting character for a bunch of reasons and may, may have been mm. anyway, but he uh, he had several bands, but none of them kind of uh, had any, um, I wouldn't say success, but any note until Helium Kids. Well, in, in 1972, Andy met Colin in Kempster's music shop in Swindon and... Um, I guess they developed a bit of a rapport then. So mm. They used to take the, the guitars off the walls and um, they'd sit down and jam, uh, which the, the owner of the shop objected to. Um, uh, Colin was uh, in another band uh, with the drummer Terry Chambers right. and then they joined Andy's band. The Helium Kids. And, yeah, well, yeah, that, that's right. Well, they joined Star Park and then they changed their name to the Helium Kids. Right. But the interesting thing was Colin Moulding was actually into heavy metal bands. Like Black Sabbath and um, right before there was deep, heavy metal, Deep Purple, yeah, yeah, and um, oh no, this this was well, I don't think it was even called heavy metal back then. Is what I'm saying. It was just a hard rock or heavy yeah, rock, but, yeah. But, but it was the time days. of yeah, Led Zeppelin and all those, mm. all those sorts. Oh, of very much so. But the interesting thing about Andy, and I've noticed this about a lot of people who I've been reading about recently, people really loved the New York Dolls. You know, mm, how we spoke yeah, about yeah. Japan like that. I yeah. think they had more of an impact in England than they yeah. did in, in it, the it, States. It was where really, they were from. really odd because when mm. I listen to the New York Dolls, I don't get it, but. Um, Thomas Dolby, for instance, I was reading about him recently and he'd love them. And a lot of the the punk uh, bands and the post-punk bands that we liked, they seemed to have have this real attachment to what was coming out of America at the time and they also sort of view the English punk with a bit of trepidation or a little bit... They like to distance themselves a bit. From yeah, yeah. But th this particular band, they're a little bit older than the punk bands too. Mm. Yeah. yeah. A, that two or three years makes a big difference so that when punk rolled around, they were a little mm. bit beyond that. Mm. Yeah, but Andy really likes Bebop Deluxe. Do you guys know who Bebop mm. Deluxe yeah, are? Yeah. When I listened to Bebop Deluxe now, I didn't really know them at the time, but they were a quirky pop band and um, it was almost like New Wave before New Wave started. Yeah. Well, there was that pub rock scene as well in, in England that was mm. not dissimilar but, but, to that. Not when pub, I say pub rock, we think of 
Australian pub rock, but that was quite sort of boogie sort of. Yeah, yeah fast. it was R and B. It was yeah, R and B, but it was but, like, yeah, like Doctor like Feelgood. Feel yeah, exactly. Like that, yeah. 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 Well, Captain Beefheart keeps coming up in discussions of Andy Partridge's adolescence and stuff he was influenced by, and the Stooges. He was a big and fan Stooges, of the Stooges. Yeah, as well. big, big fan of the Stooges. Well, this is what I mean. They seem to view the uh, American alternative music movement with uh, a lot more reverence than their own. But that's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't that anything happening in England that was of a similar vein, apart from mm. Bowie and Mark Bolan. Andy Partridge was born in 1953. So let's say in 1974, he was 20, 21, and he hears New York Dolls and Stooges and so on, even though they'd been around for a while, I guess, by then. Mm. You can see why he would go, okay, I love this. And then when Sex Pistols come along two or three years later, he kind of goes, okay, yeah, well, I already I already know this. this. Yeah. yeah, I know it, yeah. Um, yeah. And he wasn't particularly impressed when he heard Sex Pistols for the first time. He was hoping that it was going to be amazing. Mm. And between Sex Pistols and The Clash, he just thought it sounded like, you know, slightly speeded up rock music. Or I think he was just a bit old for us. Yeah, he was 23 or whatever he mm. was at that stage, whereas you need to be 17 or 18 mm. to get genuinely to excited, get genuinely about, excited it. about it. Yeah. Yeah. They were a little bit old, not as old as The Stranglers and The Police, but certainly a few years on most not, of the not, bands not, yeah, I guess. that were doing that sort of thing anyway. Not, not too much older, but yeah. But enough. Yeah. There's a big difference between 17 and 23. Uh, I, I recently saw a clip on YouTube uh, probably from about 75, of the Helium Kids playing Neon Shuffle, which ended up on the first album. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's amazing that, that for kids like us at the time, there was a feeling that this movement mm. just sprang up out of nowhere. Mm. And um, the fact that they played, like Neon Shuffle is quite um, a quirky song. It, it's, it, it seems to me like a classic new wave song. Mm. Um, and yet they were playing it before the Sex Pistols arrived. Well, they changed mm. their name to XTC in 75. Yeah. Patrick and I were talking about this earlier because it's a very punchy, punky mm, kind yeah. of sounding name yeah. to go from Helium Kids with a Z yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. XTC sounds like, all right, well, we've seen something's happening here. We need to yeah. get on board. What do we need? Change our name, XTC. Yeah, that sounds like it fits. But they'd actually done it, you yeah. know, arguably 18 months before. Did you hear where they got the, the name from? <laughs> yeah. It was from a Jimmy Durante movie. Um, I think Jimmy Durante said something like, I'm not going to do the impression, but it's like, that's it. I'm in XTC. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the missing chord. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. The missing <laughs> chord. Yeah, and um, but because he spoke in this um, staccato manner, he broke up the word ecstasy into XTC, mm. and um, and yeah, he thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and, and they they grabbed the name. Now I'm going to go back to your Swindon connection here because obviously the first album was released in '78, January. Where was Barry Andrews in that scene? Is he from Swindon? The yep. later on Shriekback founder. Yeah. Yes. He is. Uh, so all four of them were, were Swindonites. Yes, Swindonians, I believe is the term. Swindonianites. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just riff on this. The term is Swindonian, All right. if you don't all mind. Right. I've been put in my place, which is Swindon. <laughs> so they were Swindillians. Swind- <laughs> Swindalasians. <laughs> Swindasians. And, um, but the, the funny thing I read in the, the XTC book was uh, Andy saw an ad on a notice board on the wall of uh, John Holmes Organ Centre. Very good. Now, I don't know if you guys are fans of pornography at all. <laughs> Patty, do you know your what porn? A great, what a great <laughs> line that is. <laughs> but there was a very famous porn star is called John Holmes. Is this going to be a lengthy story? <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I don't know, I, I got a great deal of amusement out of reading the words John Holmes Organ Centre. But anyway, they advertised, uh, Barry Andrews advertised his services on a board and... Um, 
he came on as, as their keyboard player because they had a lot of floating members before that. Mm, yeah. Um, it's another John Holmes thing, right? Yes. That's <laughs> but, yeah, they, um, it was about December 76, the Barry Andrews came on board. Right, okay. Mm. If I can just briefly go back to 1975, it was at that point, according to Andy Partridge, they decided to play short, fast songs. Oh, right. So they'd already decided that before Barry Andrews. And before punk. Yeah, and mm. before punk. And this is where those kind of timeline issues become crucial because I feel it as if Andy Partridge has put a bit of effort into distancing himself from punk over the years and he has been quite specific about it not being 1976 Mm. or 1977, you know, when they decided to or when he decided to go with the shorter songs because they played on Swindon Television on a a show called Swindon Viewpoint and it's them with long hair and playing a song and you'll recognise Colin Moulding and Mm. I think... um, Terry on drums. Yeah, Terry Terry was on board um, at one point. But the song goes for you know maybe four minutes or so. It's got a bit of a lead break. It sounds a little bit maybe Cockney Rebel or something. But um, it's clearly a little bit pre-punk. Mm. But you can see the kind of direction they're going in. But it is interesting that Andy has gone to such lengths to kind of say, look, we like punk, we like the energy of punk, but we, we had nothing to do with punk. Well, they were quite happy to tie themselves to it by <clears throat> getting a deal with Virgin in 77 and, mm. and all the other opportunities that came their way, courtesy of punk. You yeah, know, they, yeah, that's They were right. signed up by Virgin by a record label looking for bands doing the sort of thing they were doing. Yeah. And the first album cover is very new wave it's looking. It's very black new wave. And this, this, is why, and this is why I don't buy it. Yeah, no, well, that's, I, I don't, that's, that's I, the question, it, though, isn't it? It's it? like the, the, they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, well, and look, they also cut, cut their hair short. Yeah, which they is, cut their hair which, short. Which is another extraordinary coincidence. The, yeah. thing, the thing, about, <laughs> just happened to. thing about any musical movement that comes along, and I thought about this a while ago, there's going to be people out there that are doing stuff that haven't really gotten anywhere and go, hang on a minute, we're reasonably proficient, we know what we're doing, we've been around for a while, but this is now something that may open a door for us that previously was closed. Mm. And punk did that for a lot of bands. Mm. For every Sex Pistols and Clash, there was a Stranglers and a Police that had mm. been kicking around and actually knew what they were doing <laughs> and went, hang on a minute, we cut our hair and maybe, you know, give ourselves a little bit of attitude, we're, we're, we're in here. Yeah. Who knows where it'll take us? Yeah. And XTC were definitely one of those bands. I mean, the first album is very proficient musically. Mm. When you compare it to other debuts, yeah, um, yeah, you know, like there's a lot of styles. There's a bit of ska. There's a bit of funk. There's pop. There's dub. There's all kinds of things on there. Mm. The songwriting, yeah, the songwriting's very, very, you know, it's very sophisticated. It, it's it? sophisticated. It's not a rough and ready debut. No, um, no. So I think they're being, yeah, they're kind of trying disingenuous. Yes, hiding their light under a bushel. There's yeah, something going yeah. on there. But anyway, yeah, yeah. that's fine. Well, we, should we start with the first album since we've um. We've, we've we've kind of given a fairly good background to how they got there, according to them. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, first yeah. album being White Music, which is a title of an album you'd never get away with today, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> but possibly better than than the other t- title they thought about, which was Black Music. Black Music, that's right. right. Yes. Or Beige Music, I think, is considered <laughs> uh, as Just well. before we go on to this, uh, the, the White Music game, I just want, I just want to say that uh, one of their roadies, Steve Warren, kept a diary of the first six months of touring with XTC. And uh, reading this, you get a real feeling of how there was a, a buzz surrounding XTC at this point. Um, each diary entry of each gig, you see that uh, on, you know, on one night, Brian Eno came to see them, and then on the next night, John Fox from Ultravox came to see them. 
uh, record company people, radio people came along. Um, there, there was a lot of interest in the band purely from the reputation of their live shows and uh, and that 3D EP they released. That was their first official release and then the album mm. in January 78 was the first album yeah. proper, um, which, as I said, was very proficient. Statue mm. of Liberty, it's a great song. This is pop. Still one of my favourites. Like mm. the single version is really punchy and more dynamic mm. than the yeah, album yeah, version. Yeah, yeah the, yeah, the album version is a little bit thin. Yeah, it, it, this is stuff that made you. I I heard it. I don't know how I heard it when it came out, but I definitely noticed it, and it was, mm. it was definitely more new wavy. It had less aggression, but it was certainly punchy and powerful mm. stuff. Yeah. But yeah, they seemed to know what they were doing. Actually, this is pop. The single was uh, produced by Matt Lang. Oh, really? That's why it was a bit punchier than the, uh, ah. the album version. Well, he uh, he went on to bigger and better things. Mm. But um, I also want to point out on the first album there were three Colin Moulding songs mm. at that point, which is interesting because it was always Andy Partridge's band and he's – we'll go into that later. Yeah, But yeah. there were always mm. problems ab- – about yeah. that, but I didn't realise that Colin Molding, the bass player, had three songs on that album. Which, they weren't they weren't the best ones. Though, they weren't they? the best songs, but they were still on there. So yeah, he was yeah. still making his yeah. presence felt. Uh, well, Barry uh, Andrews didn't have a song on there. I don't. Yeah. Think. No, no, not on the not first album. Not on the first no, album. No. But it's interesting that um, uh, even Andy Partridge says that the Colin Molding songs were Colin trying to be Andy. Mm. Like right. he, he hadn't. That, he would say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, to give him his due, he hadn't developed his own style yet or anything. He just heard what Andy was doing and thought, oh, "I'm going to do that." Yeah, yeah. Thing. So um, it's funny that um, uh, in terms of XTC and punk, again on on that theme, I've seen a description by Andy about the first album, and he described it as um, the Archies meets Captain Beefheart. Mm. With again, I don't see any post-punk, or any, any <laughs> punk bands being named in your influences there. Like he's mm. almost a bit too self-consciously, you know, mentioning influences that have nothing to do with punk. Yeah. yeah. I know, but even so, like even the way he sings, like would he have sung that way if it weren't for punk? And you can tell when, when you look at the way he sang later on in their career, mm. when yeah. he sang in a bit more of a traditional manner, like he was doing a particular thing. Well, when mm. you see footage of them too, he was very aggressive and yeah. bug-eyed and in your face. In and your face. Oh, as yeah. a, a front man, it was great stuff, very entertaining, mm. very punk though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so mm. I think he's kind of just trying to um, rewrite history a little bit yeah, to suit yeah. himself. I mean, I mean, what do we think of the first album? I mean, John Leckie produced it. Uh, I think it sounds fantastic. John Leckie, for those that don't know, was involved in a lot of uh, post-punk productions. Mm. Um, His background was at Abbey Road. He'd yeah. worked on Pink Floyd albums. He'd worked on George Harrison and John Lennon solo stuff, Wings albums and so on. Yeah. Uh, Sammy bit, Hagar. Bit of T-Rex. <laughs> Bebop Deluxe. <laughs> he actually did do them. But, look, I have to mention he did the first two XTC albums. He did Magazines, uh, Real Life, Simple Minds, Life in a Day, uh, did the Public Image single. Stein Roses. Uh, later on, and he also did the Skids, did Human <laughs> League's Holiday 80 EP, Simple Minds, Empires and Dance. I it's mean, quite a pedigree there. Yeah, mm. in terms of post-punk stuff, the guy was all over it. So I mm. think that that's why the first album has such a great sound to it and a great place to start for sure. I mean, it still stands mm. up. Four or five tracks on there are fantastic. Yeah, Crosswise is really odd. I'm 
quite surprised that um, Colin Moulding wrote that. Crosswise sounds to me a little bit like an experimental jazz band that I would have seen accidentally in Melbourne during my which, youth, which you did down there, and I would, have walked, I, would have, I would have walked out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it did reach number 38 on the UK charts. Mm. Now, there's always this talk about them being unrecognised and not having any success, but for your debut album, Mm. 1978 to get well, the, number the, the 38. It's not thing, a bad effort. The weird thing is that their um, <clears throat> their albums did well, but the singles at that time weren't doing that well. No, uh, but, they never uh, made a lot of money, that's for sure, but mm. they, they seem to be consistently in the mm. charts. It's amazing to me that Science Friction, Statue of Liberty and This Is Pop, I think might have been three consecutive singles, more or less, mm, yeah. and the idea that none of them, I don't think, got into the top 50 no, is no. just unfathomable to me because I'm not a huge fan of the first album, but it's like that as a string of singles, it's like what did the radio programmers what do you want have to do from, from post-punk? <laughs> well, this is the problem. This, I guess this is released in January 78 and post-punk hadn't actually happened yet. Yeah, yeah. So mm. in some ways you can make a case for this being one of the very first post-punk albums. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is an ongoing discussion in which yeah, no, no one's no, probably interested. No, no definitely. And, and, <laughs> I mean, they, they re-recorded This Is Pop, yeah. which came out a few months after White Music. Mm. Yeah, you would have thought that had all the It still sounds fantastic now. Of a hit single. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great song, great chorus. Mm. But uh, yeah, still, like I said, number 38, not a bad show. No, no. Um, so, yeah, how do we feel about the first album then, Graham? You, you were a fan, obviously. Well, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Triple Z thing you came across? Yeah, but once Brisbane's again, I think I independent saw the. Radio. Um, I think I saw the uh, the video on TV. I bought White Music not long after I saw the video. But yeah, it was fantastic. I, I even convinced uh, some friends of mine to buy it as well. You were big on that in those days, weren't you? Badgering I people. Oh, I, 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 I was <laughs> Couldn't you leave person. well enough alone? <laughs> it was enough you, that you had friends. I think I liked getting my friends into the music as well at the time. And they used to kind of look at me strangely and say, yeah, leave me alone. Leave me alone, weirdo. You weirdo. I don't even know who you are. Yeah. (laughs) Well, white music was a a revelation for me because it it was this moment where it became okay to listen to music that uh, had melody and and, uh, certain pop sensibility, um, as well as all the quirky arrangements. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, I loved it so much that I awaited with bated breath for the next album, which was um, Go To. The, the second album came out the same year. Hmm. So I think we can kind of tie them together in November, uh, October 78. Also produced by John Leckie. It's almost as if they did all the sessions at the same time. Hmm. I find these two albums to be quite similar. In fact, yeah. I find Go To a bit of a pale imitation of the first album. I'm not, I'm not as big on it. It's like the, the offcuts. It is, it is really kind of part two. Yeah, but not yeah. as good. I mean, Are You yeah. Receiving Me is, is great, great track. But um, I don't think it's as strong as the first album, and that's what happens when you release two albums in one year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe they just had a backlog of songs they were they were trying to get out there. Yeah. You know? Well, the phrase that I've heard Andy Partridge use is that the first album was four years worth of songs, and the second album was four weeks worth of songs. Right. Well, that's a criticism of most bands' second album, basically. Yeah, you yeah have that's your, right. You have your entire life to write your first album. Yeah. And then yeah. you have a couple of months to write yeah. your second one. He also said that at the time they were all living together in a situation re- reminiscent of the young ones. That apparently created a bit of uh, tension, as well as Barry Andrews 
frustration at having his songs rejected or you know only only to include when he felt that he, he deserved more. That living situation might have inspired the track Battery Brides. If you think of like Battery Hens, maybe that's yeah, what was going be. on, you know. Could be. I really like Battery Brides. Although that's also a, an homage or a tribute or something to Brian Eno. Mm. Do you know that story? But uh, yeah, what's what what's the full name of the song? Uh, Battery, Battery Brides. Just... Uh, Andy paints Brian. Andy paints Brian. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And so the Brian is uh, is Eno, who was him again. Him again. He's everywhere. He's and everywhere. He was, there were discussions about him producing that second album. Mm. Mm. But he was too busy doing Talking Heads. <laughs> Brian Eno actually said that XTC were the only band he felt tempted to join. If only they'd asked It was a funny thing to say because no one was asking. (laughs) No, no. And uh, once again, four Colin Moulding songs on this one. Right. He's he's creeping in there. He's creeping in. But it was Barry Andrews who was the real threat to Andy, I think. Yeah. Because he came along with seven songs and according to Andy Partridge, they were all good. And um, And also if you look at footage of the band. Barry's pretty crazy. He was a really, really wild keyboard player and he kind of took centre stage Mm. literally and metaphorically, which is is quite hard to do when you're a keyboard player. It's not easy. It's not easy. (laughs) As hauling his keyboard around the stage with him. Yeah, And it was was really compelling and I can see why someone who had certain alpha male characteristics, like Andy Partridge, who is a natural leader, Mm. why he would feel, you know, impinged upon by someone like Barry. The way he tells it, Barry was taking it. The, the other members for a drink without inviting Andy and sort of oh, trying to undermine right. him and, mm. you know, this is my band and, you know, this sort of sort of stuff, I suppose. So I think it probably came to a head after that album. Yeah, I read that all of Andy's songs and all of Colin's songs were included in Go To as well as B-Sides and things like that. And out of the seven songs that uh, Barry Andrews brought along, only two of them were included. Yeah, so yeah. so they, they had to give him the call and say there were five songs that are not going to be included. And it's uh, no wonder that uh, he got pissed off and left. Mm. I, I, I can certainly understand it. However, he should have also realised that he was the George Harrison of the band <laughs> mm. <laughs> to, to keep the Beatles uh, metaphor going. But I think personality-wise, it was it was never going to work because mm. George Harrison was was a low-key personality, and you yeah. don't get the impression that, that that Barry Andrews was remotely a low-key personality. Or Andy Partridge. No, that's no. right. Mm. And I think George Harrison realised he was never going to compete with um, Lennon and McCartney. Mm. Eventually, well. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> eventually he came to that conclusion. Um, oh, can we get to Are You Receiving Me? We should. Because it wasn't included on Go To. Initially. Initially. But I think it is later. Yeah, later, yeah. later it was a it single. was included. Yeah. But Martin Rushant recorded it. Ooh. Produced it. Of later fame. Mm. With Human Lake. With Human the Stranglers. Lake. I loved Are You Receiving Me. I, I thought it was a great song. I, I, was, I mean, I, I was obviously a big fan up until then. I, uh, I loved the single Statue of Liberty and um, This Is Pop. But Are, Are You Receiving Me was a whole other level, I thought. It was... Um, it was a great chorus. Uh, oddly enough, he only wrote the one verse for some reason. He just repeated it a second time. But it was a great catchy pop song um, and it was delivered in their, their patented frenetic style. Are you receiving me? I think it's fair to say most of their music was was pretty like that frenetic yeah. kind of 
jerky, quintessential post-punk. Mm. Edgy, fast, angular, kind of lyrically, I don't really know what's going on. It's all very post-modern. Mm. Um, but great stuff. It's a bit too skittish for me. Skittish? Skittish means excessively lively. And you don't like that sort of thing. By definition, something which is excessively lively is not going to be you know, a good thing. Mm. But... Um, I, I suppose, but I quite like Are You Receiving Me. To me, it feels like a natural part of the canon. C- continuum, the, the oeuvre, the, the canon of uh, XCC. We're not going to talk about the oeuvre, are we? It doesn't stand out for me compared to the other singles we've talked about. It just no. feels like, yeah, another another snappy single that could easily have been a solid hit and they must have been tearing their hair out if they weren't Barry Andrews <laughs> um, at their lack of success. They were already the kind of country bumpkins who were, they weren't taken very seriously because they did have the provincial kind of yokel accents and England being very conscious of those sorts of things. England in, in the 1970s probably more so than now, mm. as well as not being taken very seriously because they were from the provinces. They were releasing, you know, one irresistible single after another that, that was completely flopping. <laughs> have to do so Andy Partridge in particular when you see him interviewed in subsequent years did develop a slightly defensive attitude about their lack of success but you can see why when they just kept on releasing these well he's incredibly prolific that's the other thing that doesn't seem to be a problem he seems to be able to just keep writing more and more songs yeah well there was no writer's block I mean these albums were the two albums we talked about came out within what eight nine months of each other Mm. and there was more to come there was indeed well we'll go to went to number 21 did it. So once again, although the singles weren't selling, they had n- enough of a fan base to buy the albums. And they were touring relentlessly as well. They yeah. seemed to play a lot of shows. I was having a look at the list of gigs and it was mm. just like they were just constantly playing. And uh, towards the end of 78, Barry Andrews announced he was leaving and he left in January 79. So he had the Christmas. Yeah, he, he had Christmas with them. <laughs> and then he said, in the new year, I am out of here. Boxing Day. I'm packing up. And their new life began at the hop. So Barry Andrews <laughs> left in January 79 and I just wanted to say that Thomas Dolby was rumoured to be the replacement. I think he auditioned um, for the band yeah, or, yeah, or he played and tried but, it out, um, yeah. Uh, Andy thought it would be a mistake to get another talented songwriter in the band. He wasn't insecure or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think The last I thing think any band needs is two talented songwriters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dave Gregory joined March the 5th. 79. Now, I want to talk about Dave Gregory when you give me a chance. I'm going to, I'm going to throw it to you now okay. because I just want to say that it's interesting that... You sound angry, Mark. <laughs> he has a history with Dave Gregory. He doesn't like him at all. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so basically that they replaced a keyboard player with a guitarist. Mm. The floor which, is yours. Which, which I think <laughs> he found a little bit odd at the time, as in Dave Gregory, because he was a lo- local kind of session mm. museum of note, quite... Quite, you know, proficient musician. And he, was, he was he was friends with the band. He was friends well. with the band. He, he was years older than them. Had been going to see them, but he his background was blues. He was more your traditional mm. Hendrix Cream kind of rock playing. And when he came along to, to sort of to jam with the band, he, he he did that sort of stuff. And Andy Partridge was like, I don't want to hear anything that resembles the blues or rock. <laughs> so you have to do other things. Uh, but he had been watching the band, you know, over the years get better and better and, and kind of had put them down a little bit as if only they were better musicians in that typical mm. older muso kind of mm. way. If only this punk, post-punk band were better musicians, they might be interesting. 
And so he got his chance when Barry Andrews left yeah, yeah. and was able to sort of um, bring that musicality that he felt was maybe lacking. Yeah. Uh, but he'd been a fixture in the Swindon music scene for a while and Andy used to go and see him play when he was a kid mm. and go, I wish I was as good as this guy. Like I'd love to be able to play as well as he yeah, yeah. does. And eventually he ends up joining Andy's band. Yeah. And he was in the band subsequently for 19 years. So it was a fairly <laughs> long-running relationship. Yeah. Um, but we'll, there, we'll talk about that a bit later. And there was a nice moment in the audition where Dave is asked, you know, can you play along with This Is Pop? And Dave says, do you mean the album version or the, or the, or the single? The, or the single? Mm. And I was like, you know, like if you're looking to pass an audition for a band, <laughs> you can, will know I, the difference. I can play both. I can play whichever <laughs> yeah. one you want. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, their first recording was Life Begins at the Hop. <laughs> April 79. Colin Molding song? Written by Colin Molding. Bass yeah. player, yep. And what's interesting to me about that song, well, a couple of things is the terminology has got is so far from punk and post-punk about the hop. Yeah, and it's only 79. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like it's it's cocking a snook. A snoot or a snook? A snook. A snook. Are you sure it's not snoot? <laughs> what's a snook? <laughs> Can we look this up? <laughs> no I'm, one knows what a snook is, but we I, know... That I don't even know what a snoot is. I, 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 I know all about cocking a snoot. I've been doing it forever. You, I can assure you that you're cocking a snook at post <laughs> <laughs> I have no by, idea what you guys are talking about. By, Patrick's making this up as he goes along. a song, Life Begins at the Hop. It can be either. You can use either. No. You can. It, it, it is, it is I'm a... I'm not cocking anything other than a <laughs> snook at anything. Is this some sort of um, Dr. Zeus reference? <laughs> <laughs> in uh, any case But the point that I wanted to make Was that It means such, this Such Yes yeah. uh, uh, You've done a thumbing your nose gesture That's exactly yeah. right for those And wiggled not, by four fingers for those, <laughs> for those Not watching on high definition <laughs> Television um, uh, Yeah Like It's a very defiantly Unpunk um, Idea about life begins at the hop. Mm. Uh, it's a very sixties-ish sound, yeah, well, kind of I, like kink kinks-ish. Can yeah. I say precursor like to Brit pop mm. that would yeah. come sometime yeah. and, later? And, and I really like the song. I, th- I, yeah, it's I, a great I think song. I, I think mm. they do it really well. But it could not be less punk in its intentions in some ways. Mm. And <clears throat> they've lost the wacky keyboard player, who frankly was never going to amount to anything anyway. <laughs> So we should talk about was, what Barry did next. We'll do that later. We'll either talk about what Barry did next later, or he will get his own podcast. Well, mm. we, well, let's just say shriek back. He Two did words, go on to do one word shriek back. But uh, yeah, but it's interesting that their first recording with the guy who knows all his blues licks. Mm. The first recording they do is a pretty kind of old school rock sounding song, mm. and. It might have made people wonder, like the, the kind of hardcore Barry Andrews fans, might have made them wonder what direction is the band going in. But the mm. guitar work on it is really interesting. I don't think it's bluesy and boring at all. No, There's no. some but really kind of strange stuff yeah. going on there, that little high sort of almost an arpeggio thing or something. I don't know. It's great mm. stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm really talking about, about the main riff. The lyrics and stuff. Oh, the, well, the main riff and the overall theme, okay. theme ly- lyrically. And so. the this is the song that we've just debated was or wasn't on the film. In the album. UK it wasn't, but in Australia it was. And given that we're in Australia, we'll 
This is the album version, the version that we had here. Because when they toured, and we will get onto this very soon, when they toured Australia, they played Life Begins at the Hop on Countdown. Aha. Uh-huh. So it would have had oh, to have been on the nice. album then, yep. So that brings me to my next question. They only played in Australia twice, is that correct, Graham? Yes. And you saw them both times. I saw them both times. Oh, what, so what a July 79? Well, yes, they, um, they recorded Drums and Wise in April 79 and then, um, yeah, I think the, the tour was uh, July, August 79. Mm. It was a cold winter's night in Brisbane. It was a cold winter's night. And how did you find them, Graham? They played at Cloudlands, didn't they? Well, they did. Well, I've got a couple of things to... To, to read you. <laughs> I hope what? it's one of your famous rock essays. Well, basically, I saw XTC being supported by Flowers and the Numbers at Cloudland in Brisbane, and I just uh, recently read uh, the XTC Chalk Hills and Children book, and uh, remember how I, I said this, this roadie kept a, uh, a diary. And this is what he wrote about the Brisbane gig. One week into the tour, XTC hit Brisbane playing the Cloudland Ballroom. It was a massive old 30s ballroom built out of wood, recalls Dave. The place was packed out. It was heaving. We went down really well. In fact, it was one of the most enjoyable gigs on the tour for us. Afterward, we thought, yeah, Brisbane likes us. Nice. So I'm, I'm very happy about the fact that I was <laughs> at that show. And Cloud, Cloudland was, a, was about to be demolished. Uh, 82, I think it got pulled mm, down. Yeah. So it had a three, couple of three years. years. It had three years of life left at that point. But of the gig, I remember uh, seeing Annalise Morrow from The Numbers playing bass and running around the stage. Um, I remember Flowers came on, and I think it was the first time I'd ever seen them. And they played sort of a mix of uh, covers and originals. And then XTC came on, and they, they brought the house down. They were fantastic. Mm. And Dave Gregory, had uh, he'd only been in XTC for about three months, but um, he was playing like he's been in XTC since the beginning. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Oh, and I also wanted to mention um, about Dave Gregory. He was on top of the pops doing Making Plans for Nigel. This was before they came to Australia. And he said uh, it was really weird that he was driving a, a van around Swindon. That's right. And a couple of months later he was on top of the pops. It, it, it happened that quickly. Well, he him. decided mm. to give it a year. He said, I'll give this a year and see what happens. I've got nothing to lose at yeah. the moment because his musical career sort of amounted to nothing much. So once again, an opportunist who saw that this this post-punk thing could possibly be advantageous to him. So, okay, so we've got drums and wires. Well, no? I did see, uh, regarding their Australian tour, I did read an interview in the Brisbane Street Press about that tour, oh, okay. like from, from that tour, and Colin Moulding was asked um, whether there are any differences between Australian audiences and English audiences, and he said, Australian audiences are drunker. And Graham, I don't know whether you'd like to admit well, to Well, that's something we could be proud of. Well, drunker than the English. Mm. Wow, that's that's yeah. not easy to do. I think you'll know, Mark. Graham, you I, like to knock him back. I yeah. wasn't drinking at the time. No, no, <laughs> so I think I, I was I probably that. letting the side. That was one of your non drinking decades. <laughs> it, it was. But still, impressive. So we're talking, this is a. Pre the album coming out in August 79. Yeah, the, the month before. Yeah, so you got to see them right on the cusp yeah. right, of the uh, Steve Lillywhite, Hugh Padgham produced Drums and Wires, yes. which for me is the reason why we're talking about XTC in a post-punk context. If they had stopped after the first two albums, I would have said, nice stuff, interesting, but meh, not really worthy of no. Drums and Wires and the subsequent album make them worth discussing. Some people in this room might not agree with that. <laughs> but uh, drums and wires, and I'm gonna I'm gonna list the songs that make this this album the album that is their best album. You got Making Plans for Nigel, you can't argue with that. Anybody. Anyone is a fool who doesn't cast agree iron with that. classic. We're only making plans for Nigel. 
helicopter. Ten feet tall, the single version is even better. Life Begins at the Hop. Uh, four Colin Moulding songs. Uh, I think Making Plans for Nigel was the point where they started to get taken seriously by people. And the record mm. company, particularly Virgin, were like, hang on a minute, this is the guy. Colin Moulding is the guy. We should mm. get him more involved, which yeah. put Andy Partridge's nose out <laughs> no yeah. end. And he was also a good-looking guy. He was a good-looking yeah, guy yeah. with a bit of a mop top. He wasn't the, the specky, weird-looking one, yeah. as I think Andy Partridge <laughs> described himself. And he's also a fantastic bass player. I mean, the mm. bass in XTC is never really pushed up, but when you listen to the parts that he plays... They're fantastic. He's a very, very good bass player. And he obviously knew what he was doing with writing a song like Making Plans for Nigel because the first time I heard that I really thought I've never heard anything like this before. Mm. It's not a weird time signature but it sounds like it is. The drums are kind of backwards Um, and Mm. even Andy Partridge says, try and play the drums if you're a drummer on that song and you'll find it extremely difficult. It's very, very complex. It's the the, uh, toms, isn't it? Because Mm. it's playing the toms going boom, 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 boom. Well, the snare is not where the snare should be and it's it's all over the place. I don't know what you call it. Terry Chambers, he's a great drummer. It's off kilter, but it's a fantastic pop song. And, um, yeah, that set the the sort of pace for for the whole album. I think it's an amazing album. I still love it to this day. Well, do you know why they went with Steve Lillywhite? Um, I do, but I want you to tell me because if mm. I say yes, then there's really nowhere to go. <laughs> That's mm. right. Mm. Uh, basically, someone played him Susie and the Banshees, The Scream. Right. And uh, and he said, yeah, I want the drums to sound like that. So they went with... Um, it, well, it was, the, it was the beginning of the big drums mm. era, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. In that doco that we all watched, you've, Andy Partridge talks Called about... This Is Pop. This Is a Pop. 2017 XTC documentary. Mm. It talks about um, the, po- uh, the police who were, who were supported by XTC on numerous tours. Also wanting to get a little bit of that sound, uh, mm. the big drum sound, mm. yeah. which the 80s subsequently became known for. Patrick, well, you don't like the album. Drums and wine. <laughs> I, I remember having that album on tape. Did as, I give you a cassette as, of that? As possibly? a lad? Yeah. I can't remember. It might have, it might have, have been. been we, were, we were friends back then. Yeah. Um, and I was severely and sorely and permanently dis- disappointed by it. Underwhelmed? Underwhelmed, yes. Mm. Because I absolutely loved Making Plans for Nigel. It's it's probably one of my like top ten post-punk songs. Desert Island disc? Yeah, it's like one of the snappier songs in history. It's hilarious. It's, it's the lyrics are great. Mm. Did you know that uh, British Steel actually had to cancel some of their employees afterwards? They they got all the Nigels that worked for them mm. and uh, brought them in for counselling to make sure they were okay, because as you know, the lyrics um, <laughs> yeah. relate. Quite yeah, to uh, not to Nigel having a career planned. Yeah, his future with, is with as Steel. good as sealed. Yes, yes. <laughs> but um, from track two onwards, you helicopter, are cold. I have to say, you're not a fan of helicopter. Helicopter would be just about my like worst XTC song. There's Why? S- really? What, what yeah. do you dislike um, about the, it? The uh, irritatingly affected vocals, the terrible puns of obscene to be obheard. She got to be obscene to be upheard. <laughs> Graham loves uh, it good. for those reasons. <laughs> that stuff's gold. And just. <laughs> 
just doesn't do it for me at all, I'm afraid. And wow. yeah, I I like the more expansive production. I think they sound, it sounds great. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I think they they kind of needed to to go in that direction. But I think overall, maybe around that era, there was a kind of a default setting for XTC songs that were fairly fast, fairly jaunty, fairly major key, a lot of ooh backing vocals and stuff. And none of that was really the stuff that I loved. Like I liked the more kind of reflective melancholia atmospheric you were a bit depressed at that time this is not what you wanted to hear reflective i would depressed would 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 be the would be the adjective you're in a deep funk and not in a good way yeah my therapist (laughs) said i was reflective but (laughs) it maybe just wasn't what you wanted to hear no well it was certainly not my sound no and and so i can't really judge it in any way other than to say that it just didn't those kind of classic xtc songs apart from some of the first half dozen singles were not really my my cup of tea overall and that album has a few of those kind of songs there but with fractionally less energy Mm. than the first two albums and I thought the energy of the first two albums kind of carried, yeah, got carried them, them in a way that the more sedate, more polished sound of drums and wires doesn't quite pull off for me. Yeah, that's um, fair. And so there were songs like um, Millions. I really like, which is a bit slower, like nice chorusy. I think kind of bass sound, and that's that, that's kind of closer to the kind of thing that I like. And complicated game, the last track on mm, certainly I on my on my game. cassette copy. Mm. Um, that's kind of closer to what I would have liked XTC to be doing all the time, which mm. clearly was not what XTC were interested in doing. I yeah, look, I, I get what you're saying. I suppose I saw different things. Like Ten Feet Tall, I actually got on a red vinyl flexi disc oh, nice. from Smash Hits. It was a re-recorded version that's not on the album and that made me fall in love with them again because I love that song. It's a really great love song and I think it's a Colin Moulding song. Happy, I'm floating around on my feet now You make me go dizzy And we get the knees, yes I feel like I'm walking right a turn Is the single a different recording yes, or a remix? it a was. Recording? I don't know that it was released as a single or not but, it, but this giveaway red vinyl version that I have or had it was re- it was redone and it was one of his songs and I just thought it was a beautiful song and it was mm. and I well, I don't know what I was at that age but I was probably not really listening You're to You're a, a sentimental lot of, lad. Yes, I've always been sentimental mm. and um, that song I thought heralded a new direction for them. I, I still think it's my favourite album of theirs, but I, I hear what you're saying. Well, it's interesting, though, because they headed very much... Uh, into, into that the, more direction, yeah. ...into the more emotional, sentimental stuff. So mm. in years to come, there would be Mayor of Simpleton and there'd be Love on a Farm Boy's Wages Dear or Dear God. Well, I, I was thinking in terms of love song kind well, of Well, that's thing. a love song. It's, to God. It's a love song to atheism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love letter to God unanswered. Um, Graham, mm. where How do you, do you feel stand about on Drums and Wires? And wires? Mm. I love it. It's it's probably my, my um, favourite album. And you being a tunesmith, it, 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 you're happy with... Yeah, uh, Complicated Game, I just thought was amazing. I mean, you talk about a song that starts quietly and, and builds up to a crescendo. Um, I don't think there's any other song in the history of music that does it as effectively as that. It's, it starts off so quiet, he's just tentatively picking at strings. It's, you know, it's almost like he's whispering. Should I put my finger to the left? And then it, it just gradually builds up and um, in, into what it is at the end where he's screaming the lyrics. God 
when I first heard that, it was like hair standing up on the back mm. of your neck kind of a thing. And and yeah, I loved the singles. It was it was fantastic. I thought it was a, a much more accessible album than the first two. Mm. Their albums would gradually become more and more accessible, mm. but um, there was still enough new waviness about this one to enough jerkiness. Yeah, enough jerkiness. Mm. Um, and, and I, I really liked it. For me, I'm, I'm surprised to say this because I'd thought of the kind of earlier, more new wavy, kind of sharper XTC sound as being you know, the sound that I would prefer. But listening back to these albums, I was surprised that the Andy Partridge affected kind of vocal style, certainly on the first two albums and a hangover on the third album. So respirating uh, being, you know, mm. a, a particular way of enunciating and helicopter had some of that sort of stuff, whereas by the time the next album came around, he'd sort of found his voice, I think, is how he describes it. And he wasn't doing the seal barking, I think, to again, to use his own terminology. Um, for me, it still just felt a little bit affected compared to subsequent albums where you kind of go, well, you assess it on a song-by-song -song basis with Black Sea and so on. And whereas... Yeah, there's still something a little bit affected and a little bit not quite... Yeah, I think they were definitely moving away from the new wave feel the edginess yeah, and the quirkiness. Yeah. They definitely made a conscious effort to move away from that as the uh, next few albums came along. Well, I think around about this time, Andy Partridge did say that he was being influenced a lot more by bands like the Beatles and the Kinks, and, and he did mention them by name. Hmm. And, you know, to whatever extent he might have admitted to being influenced by other post-punk bands, Talking Heads or whoever, he certainly was leaving that far behind by the time the transition came from Drums and Wires to Black Sea, the next album. Hmm. Okay, so that was that was uh, Drums and Wires. Anything else you want to add about... Uh... Went to number 34 in the UK charts. So hmm. they're sort of hitting those 30s and can't quite break past. But Nigel went 17. Yes, so there you go. So they had a, they had a hit single at last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are we in, into 1980 now? Because I know that they toured the US with the police. They toured the US to the police a few times. Mm. It seemed to be a regular kind of thing. They kind of mates with them. They got on really well, apparently. Mm. And they, they were both two new wave bands on the ascendance. Mm. But um, I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that uh, I think Sting was paying a lot of attention to XTC because uh, the chord progression from making plans for Nigel uh, showed up on da do 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 da 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 da. Oh, I feel that. Can you prove this, Graham? Can I, can I prove it? Is yes. there a way of somehow showing <laughs> I don't this? Don't know. Um, you'll just have to take my word for it. But yeah, I think I think Sting was a bit of a fan. Well, I guess they wouldn't have been supporting them otherwise. Well, the This Is Pop documentary interviewed the, well, Stuart Copeland mm. from Police is, is interviewed and he speaks very highly yeah. of them. So they were obviously compadres at the time. Mm, Simpatico. So. Simpatico. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to Black Sea, the fourth album, which yes. came out in September 1980. I'm going to go out and say that this is a um, Steve Lillywhite album again. It is. Mm. And I think this is a real bid for chart success and uh, hit singles and the breakthrough. It's the fourth mm. album. They've probably had enough of being poor. They've been sort of screwed around by their manager and Virgin, so they're probably – I think they were on £100 a week, they were saying there for a long, right. long time. Even though they were recording and playing live a lot, they were really getting a lot of critical praise and, and a lot of attention but had absolutely no money. So I think they went, okay, I'm going to write some hits here. And uh, – 
They did. They absolutely did. Uh, it was their most successful album to mm. that time. U- US charted, number 41. Well, uh, Gen- Generals and Majors Generals came out Majors. a month before the album. Great song, uh, written by Colin Moulding again. Yeah. There, there he is again. Yeah, there he is all again. of a sudden he was, the, he was the front man on all their singles. Mm. And, but, I, and I don't know whether it's a reflection from Andrew Partridge's perspective about it being a Colin Moulding song, but he did describe the film clip of Generals and Majors, which features Richard Branson dressed up in military garb. But, yeah, Andy Partridge did describe it as the worst video ever made by man. That's, <laughs> so. that's, that's not that harsh, no. <laughs> no. And I do quite like the Generals and Majors video, but the last 60 seconds, which features the band bouncing around in a bouncy castle, I think 60 to 90 seconds of them bouncing, just literally just bouncing around in, in a it bouncy castle. It doesn't get castle. any more new wave than that. Well, I just thought, <laughs> like a bit of a bit of editing, Martin killed it. Mm. 10 seconds, 15 seconds. <laughs> Do we need the full minute and a half? Fair enough. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you timed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a guest of it. We should mention Respectable Street. Song. Yeah, the lyrics are still that sort of kitchen sink drama, small mm. town stuff mm. that Andy Partridge writes really well. Um, the sound of the album is is amazing. Listen mm. to it back. Mm. Yeah, it was it now. brilliantly produced. Really punchy and clean. Mm. Um, Great drums. Yeah, and probably packed with more hits and more mm. memorable songs than any of the other albums. Uh, and this was a successful album because of that. Uh, they did tour Australia again. I did September nineteenth. I saw them at Festival Hall, and this was the the famous the, the famous uh, XTC magazine, magazine XTC, yeah. uh, flowers. flowers and in excess gig. That um, <laughs> this gig is just <laughs> living it, it, on in it's memory. Go, it's it's going to keep uh, cropping up when we do our magazine podcast. Well, we've done three of those. And if we bands. do our in excess con podcast, <laughs> yeah. it's going to come up four times. Yeah, um, but it, yeah, it, it was it was a great show. Magazine with the headliners though. No. XTC, XTC with the headlines. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, XTC, that's not right. XTC had hits. <laughs> the magazine never had hits. Okay, Graham. <laughs> Moving on. Well, maybe we should at this point move on to where Andy's wife, Marianne, made the decision to throw away Andy's Valium. Yes. Well, he was only 25. <laughs> He'd only been on it for 13 years. 13 years. I know, but th- this is an important thing to mention. Mm. And it was a unilateral decision. It mm. was He came back from, what, rehearsal or from a gig or whatever one day. I think he'd day. been out, actually, drinking. Oh, uh, okay, right. And he right. went to find his Valium to help him mm. sleep and she'd, she'd was said, like, no, you're off it now. they're gone. Mm. Which kind of messed him up for the next 12 months, I think. It's a cautionary tale that um, people should stay on drugs mm. because they're happier. If anything, increase the dosage. <laughs> increase the dosage because look what happens. You end up being unhappy and not touring anymore. Mm. Mm. Nobody wants that. I think in the long term, I mean, I, I, I fully <laughs> accept that you're completely serious about that, but I think in the long term 
No, there were advantages. To staying on them so or going off them? No, to have gone <laughs> off them and that the months or 12 months or whatever of mental... Anguish, hmm. torture. Yes, certainly anguish. Mayhem. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, was, it, was, it was problematic but it was worth it. Look, As well, I understand well, it. before we finish talking about this album, we should... We I haven't even started talking we, about this Well, I, I, yeah. Sergeant Rock was controversial. Um, and this is something that might be close to your heart. It uh, a lot of feminists got upset about that song at the time. There was a protest. There may have even been some record burning. I'm not 100 percent sure, but anyway, the lyrics were quite controversial to that track. And um, Andy has subsequently kind of backtracked from backtracked from that song and said that it was. Um, he said it was something. It was something. Um, it was meant to be amusing, but it ended up being sort of not very charming and not and, and not ah, very okay. fun. Right. Yeah. Kind of a joke gone wrong in some way. Yes, exactly right. But it's a great. It was a great single. It was. They had four singles on the album, and that was um, one of the better ones. Well, to to open an album with respectable street and then generals and majors. Is that right? I think so. That's pretty solid. And you were back on board? Uh, yeah, I, they kind of slowed the tempo down and I thought, for my money, the songs are just better songs. Mm. And, yeah, I think something like Travels in Nihalon. Yeah, great mm. song. Like An album of that is really what I wanted. Like, Well, so I was going to say, that XTC, sounds like what The Cure were doing. XTC <laughs> trying to sound like Killing Joke. That's actually what I really yeah, wanted. Yeah, there is that Killing Joke <laughs> guitar riffing, but it's got the toms. Mm, that, yeah, that sort yeah. of Cure, maybe Joy Division, Tom Tom sort of mm. work through it. Yeah, yeah, I thought the same thing. Yes, so most of the way through, I'm definitely on board. Where do you stand on Towers of London? Bit of a slow burner, mm. slightly stodgy, mm. but I think you know the last minute or two, it you know, gets there. It gets there. Gets you over it. the line. Yeah, I, d- I don't think it's an obvious single though. No, I was no. I was surprised it was released as a single. I would have thought Living Through Another Cuba was, yeah, more yeah, a single, yeah, which is a great song regardless. Yeah. Albeit containing a factual error. Which is? Ah, well, uh, the Cuban crisis happened in 1962 and he says it happened in 1961. Daylight saving? He (laughs) realised, he has confessed, he has confessed to it. So this is not some revelation. No. So if he was was able to tour, he he could actually change the um, lyrics to the correct year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, so, (laughs) but as it is. He won't. Mm. So maybe he was just making reference to... um, being there on a Kentucky holiday in '61, and uh, nothing to do with the crisis. nothing to do with the crisis at all. My understanding is that <laughs> <laughs> is so, that it was extremely deeply politically motivated, but and and he loved politically motivated songs. He loved Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that sort of stuff. He said, "I want more Clash political songs." That was <laughs> that was, that was always thing. his catch cry. Yes. So, yeah, I knew the singles from Black Sea, but I'd never really heard the album or listened to it properly. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised. No, it's a, it's a great album. And that was mm. a definite um, a, attempt to, to be popular and have more success, which they mm. did. It was a big hit in Australia, that album. Yeah. I remember hearing Generals and Majors on commercial radio. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it got, like, number 24 in Australia. The album. Uh, no, the single, uh, Generals and Majors. Yeah, so that's not bad. The album got to number 16, I think, in the UK. Black that's State. what I've got, and 41 in the US. 41 in the US, not bad. That would have been their most successful album to date by some distance. September 1980, Black Sea. Black Sea. Beautiful. So what was next for XTC? Well, 
this is where the problems began and it's sort of the big split mm. in many ways. They went on to record the next, the fifth album, English Settlement, which was released in February 82. But this was the period where you're talking about Andy having trouble playing live and increasingly mm. refusing to play live to the point where in April 82 they did their last show yes. ever. I've got some dates here. <laughs> yeah, that's it, April 82. <laughs> March 18, <laughs> 1982, was when uh, they played the La Palace in Paris and Andy left the stage after one song, so they played Respectable Street and then he walked off stage. Mm. And you can actually see that on YouTube. Someone was filming the show. And then the show was cancelled in Birmingham and then they talked him into doing a US tour. Mm. They went to America, they played uh, one show and he got through it okay. And then, uh, then he just said, I'm not doing this anymore. The tour was cancelled. And um, apart from a series of acoustic shows in 1989, they never played again. They never but did they again. play together in those shows? Yes, what they did in 1989, and I guess they were really forced to because they had a couple of albums there which had uh, sort of what you'd call college hits. Mm. You know, mm. the college radio would love them. And uh, they were and really... Mayor of Simpleton got to number 72. <laughs> yeah. <in the> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, no. You've got to go out and support that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. But they did a tour of radio stations. They did like acoustic shows around all these radio stations around America. And then the last show, they performed King for a Day on David Letterman. That was wow. the last time they, they played together. But it's, it's fair to say it was the beginning of the end mm. of the XTC that we'd known mm. Mm. because uh, the drummer basically walked out. There was friction there. He, he yeah. wanted to be a working musician mm. and play live. Mm. Andy basically decided I'm going to be a studio musician from now on and, and make more complicated and complex albums that can't be played live and I won't be playing them live. Mm. Well, you can tell by the arrangements on English mm. Settlement that that's exactly what Andy wants to do because mm. yeah. it's very sophisticated, rich and, uh, yeah, like multi, multi-instrumentalisation. Yeah. Hugh Padgham on board, the Hugh. producer, Hugh Padgham. Who uh, mm, yeah, worked with yeah, the police yeah. and other people had been working previously with Steve Lillywhite. Yeah, well, Hugh Padgham the previous month had finished working on Ghost in the Machine, the yep. police album, which, and then which and, did okay, which did moderately well, <laughs> and then he goes from that to XTC English Settlement, which mm. which is kind of an mm. interesting change of pace, but in some ways a kind of a similar kind of rich tapestry. Mm. But it was also a very good album, produced you know three great singles. A bit more interesting kind of musicianship. Melt the Guns had fretless bass on it, which I don't mm. think they'd really yeah. used before. I used to love Melt the Guns. I used yeah. to play that song all the time. But uh, Senses Working Overtime, Ball and Chain, No Thugs in Our House featuring You Good Self, Graham. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics yes, talk yes. about uh, we've made my, Graham promised us he'd be a good boy. My name doesn't appear in many songs. No, certainly not as a racist thug. <laughs> It's such an un-racist thug name, Graham, but um, mm. maybe that's why they used it. Yeah, yeah. Big hit, UK t number five. Yeah, uh, yeah. 48 in the US, not so bad, but, yep. you know, still. Senses working over time, top ten in the UK. Yeah. Successful here as well. Mm. Mm. But there was sort of that point where um, there was a, a, the stresses with the band became a bit more open. For Andy deciding not to play live, I think that provoked yeah. a lot of resentment with the other members. Yeah, especially with Terry, because yeah. Terry Chambers wanted nothing more than to play live. Well, some of them said, well, he had a breakdown of some sort. Of, it was quite dismissive. 
yeah. of yeah, his yeah. issues with doing that. They just felt he didn't want to do it and that was all. Well, he, from, would, he would see that completely differently. Yeah. Well, from Terry Chambers' point of view, he was a drummer who was in, in, increasingly kind of feeling marginalised, I think, anyway, mm. in a studio situation where for, for days, weeks at a time, he wouldn't be doing anything. Wouldn't do anything. Yeah. And to a certain extent he was being told what to do as the drummer. He didn't have autonomy as a drummer. Mm. You know, Andy Partridge had, in, in particular, had plenty of ideas about what... Everybody what, should do. ...what the drummer should be doing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Terry was justifying his existence, you know, as a musician by playing live. That was yeah. that was how he kind of showed what an excellent drummer he was. Mm. And if that's out the window, then... Then what, yeah. Then he, then it's Dragon. Then he may as well emigrate to Australia and play with a band called Dragon. <laughs> there you go. And Roadie for his son. Was mm. his wife Australian? Yes. Right. Yes. Would, he he met his why. wife in the first Australian tour. She was a barmaid in Newcastle. Wow. They got married and they're still together now. And he's moved back to England apparently just recently. So, yes, English Settlement is a kind of a curious album because it does herald the beginning of XTC's pastoral I was going to try and throw that word in there, but I thought it sounded too pretentious, but I'm glad you did it. If anyone's going to say it, Patrick. (laughs) Well, I could tell it was on the tip of your tongue. Mm. So, I mean, a song like Yacht Dance or... Dance is really the song that I'm thinking of, <laughs> um, which I really like. But it's a very gentle, soft, mainstream, mm. couldn't be further from punk or post-punk. Well, Sense is working overtime since Medieval. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's got that strange sound. Clouds especially, away. Yeah, especially the beginning of it. Um, mm. Yeah. Completely different direction from this is pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they couldn't, I mean, they couldn't keep playing that forever. Well, some bands do. The Ramones did, status quo. I mean, you can keep playing ACDC. You can keep playing that mm. forever Rick if you Parfitt want to. Rick would disagree with yeah. that analysis. I mean, Andy's a very pr- prolific and talented guy and very driven and very much the leader of that band. And I guess whatever he wanted to do is what they do. Mm. And while the others were content to follow him, it was fine. But obviously that didn't go on forever, past, well mm. past this. But he, he, he comes off in the documentary as... As you said, Patrick, I think a bit of a wanker, not the easiest person. Um, You're paraphrasing. It, I think Dave Gregory says when when he's in a good mood, he's fantastic. When he's in a not in a good mood, you don't really want to be around him. So he's a little bit, uh, you know, swings and roundabouts, shall we say. Swings and magic roundabouts. Magic yeah. roundabouts. <laughs> Back to the roundabouts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. That was the fifth album that came out in 82 mm. and I guess after that, coupled with the never playing live again and, um, and moving into different areas, that they mm. became that a different band. That, that was the end of that. Yes, they became a different band for sure. Mm. And um, it took me ages to listen to their subsequent albums mm-hmm. because I thought they became a different band. It wasn't until a Greatest Hits album came out which had um, two CDs and the first CD was all of their early stuff up until English Settlement, and then the next CD was all their later stuff. And I didn't listen to that second CD at all. Mm. And eventually I've sort of come around to it now and realised that there are some wonderful songs on those later albums from, well, what are we talking, 84 to, to, to 92 or something? That, yeah. They had enormous success in America with those albums. And, I don't uh, know about the word enormous there, Graham. Okay, I may be, I may be uh, <laughs> overselling it, it there. Yeah. <laughs> Overcooking that. But, but top um, 50. Maybe Oranges and Lemons was mm, top 50. 
but they. But yeah. college, like college hit. Yeah, college hit. Yeah. So in in the scheme of things, are we going to wrap it up at this? Mm. Do, why do we think? I suppose is what I keep coming back to. Why do we think XTC are worth a mention in in the uh, annals of post punk for these first five albums? Well, it is interesting that Simon Reynolds, the fellow who is considered to be, well, he's he's certainly a prominent voice in the world of post-punk analysis and his seminal work, Rip It Up and Start Again. Mm-hmm. It's, what, four, 500 pages long and I think there are maybe 40 words about XTC. I don't even think there's that many. I think there are a couple of sentences. Maybe where he just talks about them in relation to other bands. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is yeah. no so, mention of their importance or otherwise. Yeah. Simon Reynolds is just another bozo like the rest of us in certain respects, but it is interesting. Interesting that mm. some people will say, like XTC, as you'll see from the This Is Pop documentary, people from Harry Shearer. Of The um, Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> of, of, of The Simpsons fame to Stuart Copeland. To Stephen Wilson. To Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree fame mm. to um, John Grant. Yeah. Quite an eclectic bunch. Absolutely adore XTC and consider them to be a crucial band in the history of rock music, presumably including post-punk. Mm. And then you'll have someone like like Simon Reynolds kind of dismissing them, you know, with a bit of a wave mm. and a bit of a cursory mention. And so, you know, somewhere within those two extremes falls the truth. And I think Graham, if anyone can explain what that truth is. I don't know whether I can. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that he can because it's too close to his heart. Ah. That's that's my take on it. But but have a go, Graham. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, how do you begin to make sense of the reasons why, um, as a, as an adolescent, you're drawn to a particular a band or music? Um, I, I bought all five of these albums as they were released. Uh, I went to see them twice in concert, and uh, when I eventually had my own band in the early eighties, I tried to I tried to make my songs quirky, catchy, new wave pop songs that were um, more than a little reminiscent of this band. So um, I don't know. I, I don't know why they resonated with me personally. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why they resonated as a post-punk band. They came out at a point, they released two albums in 1978 that were in, inflected with the sound that everybody wanted to hear at the time. They progressed ever so slightly. The lyrics were always interesting. They were never banal. The instrumentation was always interesting. They had an attitude that marks them out as a post-punk band to me. They were always worth watching. You never knew what they might do next. You might not necessarily like it, but they were never boring. They were always interesting and worth keeping an eye on. And, and Andy Partridge is a great songwriter. They were successful because they had great songs and they could play them very well. And when they added Dave Gregory to the mix, it was even better. And they are well worth having in here, absolutely 100%. What they did afterwards is no consequence, but the first three albums alone would mark them out as absolutely belonging there. 